Well, good evening. Good evening. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our great God and Heavenly Father, you are so unworthy of your grace and mercy in our Lord Jesus Christ that we, like the Apostle Paul, are stunned and awed by that great grace that has been given us by your call to call us out of the world into your marvelous kingdom and light. And Father, we pray that you would help us to understand more fully that grace as it is manifest in the Apostle to the Gentiles this evening, that through it we may glorify your great name through Jesus Christ, through the work that you have done in your Son and manifested through your Apostle. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, this evening, uh, we are primarily going to be focusing on chapter 1, verses uh, 11 through the end of the chapter, through verse 24 of Galatians. But I want us to think about something that we... uh, Uh, In the section that we dealt with last week, we dealt with the introduction to Galatians. And I'd like you to look at those first ten verses, especially the first five of those verses. And I would like you to compare those uh, to some other epistles of his and see if there's something missing in this epistle. Uh, Someone could turn to 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 to 5. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 to 5, and read verse 2, and then someone else could turn to 1 Corinthians 1, 4 to 10, and especially read verse 4. Then would we read for us uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2? We give... We give thanks to God always for you, for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Okay, very good. Someone else? 1 Corinthians 1.4. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Okay. David, is there something similar between those two verses? Well, if you... Thanks to the uh, audience, the intended recipient of the letter, for their being in God's community and uh, being the beneficiaries of grace. And there's no such compliment in Galatians that I can just... Good. Okay. Very good. So if you're looking at Galatians 1, 1 to 5, you don't see any such compliment. You don't see any thanksgiving for the people. Instead, what do you find in 1.6? Yeah, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting the grace of Christ for another gospel, right? So rather than thanksgiving, it's amazement at their turning away from the gospel. And this may show the different tone of the letter to the Galatians than some of his other epistles. 
And notice the two epistles that I just referred to, 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians, these are thought to be epistles that uh, are either written uh, right after Galatians or before and after Galatians. So this was his practice at that time, but we don't find that in Galatians. So again, a very serious tone here at their desertion. Um, now, I'd like us to look at Galatians uh, 1.11 now as we look at the next section. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not according to man. For I would have you know. Often in ancient rhetoric, this was known as a disclosure formula. Suddenly, someone is disclosing information. I would have you know this. And quite frequently, it would introduce a new section of the discourse. And so that might be one marker uh, that that's the case. However, I think it's very clear uh, from this that we do have somewhat of a new section uh, verses 11 and 12, for I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which I preached, uh, which was preached by me, is not according to man, for neither received it, uh, neither, I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That seems to be like an introduction and a thesis to what he's going to say afterwards about uh, his life uh, in Judaism and his calling. To Christ, And there's a lot of uh, examples as we go through some of the words that are repeated in those sections. You'll see that, that that is very likely to be the case. Now, you might ask yourself, you're looking at this. I mean, we haven't read the narrative, but there is a narrative that follows of Paul's calling and where he's going. Uh, eventually, his, his coming to Jerusalem and then Peter's coming to Antioch. Um, do you find a narrative like this? in such detail in any of other Paul's other epistles. Art? Uh, not that I'm aware of. No. It doesn't seem like we do find any kind of detailed narrative like this in any of the other epistles. Uh, we've got, you know, Paul recalling his past life in certain places in other epistles, but nothing in this detail. So it's sometimes asked, why in a piece of persuasion is Paul trying to write a narrative? What's this all about? Reminds me more of a gospel or the book of Acts, right? Well, actually, even in ancient rhetoric, it was true that someone would get a, a, a narrative of their case, like if there was a defense at the, at the court, they might defend their case by going over a narrative of the past situation. Uh, or if they're trying to persuade someone, they might also give a narrative. But I think this particular way of thinking about things is a little bit short-sighted. It's true, perhaps, as far as it goes, but it makes, the, uh, it, makes it sound like this narrative here is just to persuade you of an idea. Okay. And I think there's something more to it than that. I think Paul is trying to seek to help us to identify with Christ as, in fact, we identify with him in his narrative as the apostle to the Gentiles. And I'm going to suggest that as we go further on in this book, in the letter. Well, 
if we're going to look at this narrative, um, there's lots of uh, twists and turns in this narrative. Um, and I'm going to suggest to you that there's a stage in verses 13 to 14. So, Frank, could you read for us verses 13 to 14? Where you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how I intensely I prosecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Okay, so what does that represent? A stage in Paul's life in which he was what? Persecuting the Christians. Persecuting the Christians. Very good. Now, we have a clue that after this, there is a new stage. And basically, that's because there's a repeated word in verses 15, a combination of two words. You'll see them even in your English. They're the first important words uh, that are repeated in 2.11. Now, I don't know how your version does it. Anybody have the NASB, though? Yes, Ben. But when? But when, yes. But when, beginning that section. If you then go to 2.11, you also have the same marker. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. And the Greek has the same uh, markers. Well, let's uh, someone read for us verses 15 through 17. We have a new section there. Okay, did you read that for us? Sure. Oh, I, I couldn't hear you. Oh, okay, that's all right. Sorry. 15 through 17? Yeah. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult with any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Okay. Then at the beginning of verse 18, we have another word that clues us off that this is the beginning of a section. And we find that word repeated in verse 21 and in 2-1. I went up again. You, you know, you're on a right track. There, that, that's a later word we're going to look at. But uh, at this point... Uh, there's something else I'm looking for. Then. 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 Very simple. Then. Okay. Just that repeats. So then. Notice, then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But when I did not see any other of the but I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Okay, someone want to read for us? And then we have another then statement in verse 21. So that begins another section through 24. Could somebody read for us verses 21 through 24? 
went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. Okay. Good. And we're not going to read through all chapter 2, but you see that 2.1 says, again, then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And then we've already seen in 2.11, next stage, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And it's interesting with these markers, you can see that, uh, you know, on the we got three in the middle that are the same, the then, then, thens, and then uh, on the outsides of those, we have uh, the markers, but when. Yeah. All this timing that's set forth in this section mm-hmm. uh, raises in my mind a question anyway. He says the gospel he received by revelation from Jesus Christ. When is that? reception or that revelation of the gospel to him was it on the road to Damascus was it when he was in Arabia for three years well we'll look at that later but just at the moment take a look at what he says he he's gets and then he says uh, in verse 17 but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus right so it seems like this is a call on the road to Damascus then he goes to Arabia because he's then implying that I returned again to Damascus. Well, there's some of the stages in our narrative. And and if you're familiar with any films, I mean, you watch films, right? Uh, You've got these stages of the narrative. You know, Uh, there's often a stage to the narrative when the character is thought to be in their own ordinary world, you might have someone such as the Wizard of Oz. You've got Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz, and if you remember, she's with Toto out there in Kansas, and it's all in black and white. And then suddenly she gets called by that famous tornado, right? So she's got the tornado, and that's uh, that's her call. And then she goes through a series of stages of opposition through chapter two of the film. You know, she comes up against the the uh, the scarecrow and you know the Tin Man and and against the lion. And finally, uh, in the middle, she meets the Wizard of Oz at the midpoint. And then she goes through another series of oppositions with the witch. And then she has her greatest, what we call a turnaround here, uh, where you have, some, one of my professors call it a dramatic turnaround, it's called different things but different people, where she throws water on the witch, and uh, the witch is melting, and from now on she's got power over the witch, and the witch, uh, well, the witch dies at that point, but the enemy of evil is, is on the way out for her, okay, until her climax when she says there's no place like home. Well, here you have a narrative sequence of sorts as well. Okay. You have a narrative sequence where these stages of the narrative are occurring. Okay. And so that tells us something about the drama. That's what a writer does when a writer gives stages is to call you get you to enter into the drama. So there's these quick shifts. Okay. And of course, you can see a real quick shift in 211, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. There's a big shift from the earlier part where Paul had met with Peter in Jerusalem and P- 
Peter had given him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. But then, but, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I posed him to his face. So a big dramatic shift occurs there, right? Now, um, let's uh, take a look at some of the themes, some of the broader themes of the narrative. Uh, this whole narrative, first of all, then we'll focus more particularly on chapter 1. Uh, you have uh, a repeated word in verse 11. Somebody can find that 111. No, 111. Okay, it's also repeated in verse 10. What? Four. Four? Four. Four. Um, No, but you're right. That is repeated in verse 10. What I have in mind is a word that occurs twice in verse 11 that also occurs twice uh, in verse 10. Now, it may occur in the plural, okay, uh, in one case. Now, why do I have this... um, Excuse me, it's 11 and 12, that's where I'm I'm messing up. It's repeated in 11 and 12. It occurs once in each of 11 and 12, but it occurs twice in 10. Man. Man is the word, yes. Okay, so man. And that might also be kind of a hook word that connects verse 10 to verse 11 and 12. And this is a pretty significant word, at least I'm going to argue. Look also what it's contrasted to in verse 12, the second part of verse 12. Man... Versus what? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Hmm, interesting. Man versus Jesus Christ. And this is an opposite, uh, uh, opposition Paul's going to continue with. In fact, look at his call. Verse 15, but he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. There is the call of Jesus Christ versus consulting with flesh and blood. But just hold that in your mind for a moment. Let's see how this uh, theme of man is found in 2.6. Does anybody see that? Basically, it's what you have is he, Paul did not consider the face of man. 
Okay, Paul does not consider the face of man. Um, and that is more easily seen in your Greek version. Um, so that if you look at the Greek, 2.6 has... Uh, what they were makes no difference to me. God does not receive the face of man. Okay, God does not re- receive the face of man. So you have this thought of the face of man, essentially. You've got man up here, and there, again, it's God does not receive the face of man, a contrast between God and the face of man. Well, Here's the face of man in 2.6. And what do you have uh, then in 2.11? Opposed him to his face. Okay. Opposed him to his face. Here, Paul is associated the face of man, and here he's opposing him to his face, as if he does not concern himself with man and the reputation of man. And it's interesting that actually the way Paul chooses to construct this in Greek is he chooses to construct it as according to the face of according to the face. Okay. According to face, mm, I wonder. I wonder if that's similar to what Paul has uh, earlier in in one eleven, where he goes. The full phrase is according to man. Why else such a construction? I wonder. Question. Yeah. Yes, 2.6 is according to... Uh, no, no, 2.11 is according to face. I'm sorry. 2.6 is the face of man. So I would suggest to you we have this contrast made between man and God. Man and God. And what? how does that contrast delineate out? Is it just God as creator as opposed to man? No. Look at look at one six. See if you can find a word that's one six fifteen. One six, one fifteen, and two nine that repeats in those sections. Grace. Thank you. Grace. You called you in the grace of Christ. Paul is called by the grace of Christ. When they represent, when they recognize the grace given to me, grace given to me, you see, in my calling to the Gentiles. The grace. Here it is, man and man's works as opposed to God and his grace.
Let's think about this in terms of what we looked at last time, Paul's gospel. He's told the Galatians that they have rejected his gospel, his gospel of the kingdom of God. And remember, I suggested to you that interface that occurs between this age and the age to come. We have Paul on the Damascus Road who sees the risen Christ, Christ who is raised from the dead, who brings in the age to come. This age that he has brought in is according to God, if you will, to kind of rework the phrase. This age is according to man. Here later, will Paul will speak about a contrast as he gets into chapter 2 between that age of the spirit versus the age of the flesh. I'm suggesting to you that Paul is, throughout this section, already dealing in narrative form. You see, with the contrast that he's going to make later in this letter... You know, when we get to chapter 3, and we get to chapter 4, and Paul makes those contrasts between the flesh and the spirit, he's embodying that contrast already in the narrative. He's wanting the Galatians to identify with him, one who has left the age of the flesh, and who has come to the age of the spirit. And that in identifying with him as their apostle, then they will see the glories of the grace that he's going to reveal to them in chapters 3 and 4. You see, that's the glory for you as well. The glory to enter into this heavenly abode. Now, you may have been a little baffled last time when I said to you, that everybody has their own individual little eschatologies in the flesh. Okay, I said, you know, person, let's just use some names. Maybe Jane has her own eschatology. Okay, and maybe Bill has his own eschatology. Um, and so forth. What I had in mind there is a, a eschatology as someone's ultimate goal their ultimate desire in life. Okay. What do they worship above all things? You can look in your own heart and you can see in your own past life and existence, especially apart from Christ, how you absolutize probably one thing over all other things. Or maybe you didn't, whereas you should have seen God as the most absolute. You lived in a state of confusion and disarray. And that was your eschatology. That was your goal. You see, you see, this is what the Galatians are returning to. They are returning to a life after the flesh, where they are seeking their own individual desires and goals. And Paul is, and that brings confusion and disarray and discord. Paul is trying to say no. It's not of that. It's what God has already done. He has already brought to you all that you know you seek for in its perverted form has been brought to you in its true form in Christ Jesus. 
You don't have to keep living your life on the treadmill of your own personal eschatology. A grander eschatology has come to you in Christ, in God. And it is not by your works, by your treadmill of trying to pull up your own bootstraps and accomplish these things to bring about your little eschatological goal. It is by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And somehow, Paul is going to suggest that by going back to the law at this period after Christ has come is like going back to the world. Well, let's take a look again, more specifically, at some of the things that are going on in Galatians 1, 11 through 24. Now, I suggested to you a repetition of a word in verses 11 and 12. So you can correct that, verses 11 and 12, which is, also, which is then contrasted to verse 12. And, of course, that is man, right? Man versus God. Man versus Christ. Then in verses 12 and 16 we have another uh, phrase or word that is repeated. And so, I'm going to ask Helen to tell us what that word is. Do you see a word that's found in verse 12 and, and verse 16? Think about this word. In fact, it's got a, it, there's a book of the Bible named after this word. Revelation. Revelation. Okay, Revelation. Very good. So Paul's speaking here about the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a revelation by grace. A re, it's revelation that brings in a new kingdom. It's from God. It's not from you. And he's going to... He sets up that revelation in verse 12, and he discusses it in verse 16. Now, I put a note here on the deity of Christ. Why? What are the contrasts going on here? I just mentioned the contrasts. Craig, Craig what, what did I say about the con- What are the two main contrasts? Good. Or man and God, right? Okay, so what conclusion do you draw from that about Jesus? Is he just a man? It would seem not. I mean, if Paul is going to make such contrast between man according to man and according to Jesus Christ... He can make that contrast because he believes that Christ is also God. And so I think implicit in the contrast he draws out here is the divinity of Christ. 
All right, well, let's, let's look at another uh, repeated word, verses 11 and 24. Jim, do you see a repeated word there? No, I'm still thinking about the deity of Christ. Okay. You think that's questionable? <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just trying to push it a little further. Sure. Uh, give somebody else a chance while my, okay. my brain. Okay. That's all right. Works. Cheryl, do you see a repeated word there? Do you want to defer to Art? Because Art looks like he, he, he's got something. Okay. <laughs> what is that? Well, maybe I was wrong about that look. <laughs> you know, you're right about that. And that is one word that repeats. That's the next word I was going to give. So you got one of the two words. That's good. And that, and that was going under second repeated word. And it's also found in verses 13 and 16. All right. And since you brought it up, Art, what do you think the full phrase that I'm looking for in verse 16 is? Me. Me, but just me by itself? In me. In me, yes. In me. And verse 24, the Greek, your translation may say because of me, but the Greek can be in me. Okay, it's in me. It's in me, all right? So, in me. I'm going to say something about that term, but first of all, let's go to our next repeated term. What else is found in there? It could be an action, if that helps. Preach. Preach is right, okay? Notice, he says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. And then in verse 23, he says, um, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. He is preaching it because Christ is, to use that phrase, in me. Okay? In me. And I'm going to suggest to you that this phrase is poignant. That it does represent Paul's union with Christ. That on the Damascus road, God revealed his son in me. And what is the purpose clause that goes with it? He revealed his son in me that I might, Craig, preach. Preach him, okay? So you see those words go together. God revealed his son in order that he might preach him. Here we have, if you will, a revelation. A revelation of the glory of the heavenly kingdom. 
manifest in the Apostle Paul and his preaching. What is he saying about his preaching? Yes, Christ is in him. And so he preaches. Now make that connection. Who is the Christ that is in him? Yes, Jesus. But what has he said about Jesus earlier? What has he said about Jesus earlier? Who, verse 4, chapter 1, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age. I've written it up in a chart for you here. Spirit, he has revealed that the age to come has arrived to you. He has revealed that the eschatological age has been semi-realized in Christ. And he has revealed that revelation in Paul, in the very historical call of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. So that when Paul preaches the gospel, he is preaching that which is revealed in him. He is revealing the glories of the kingdom of God. That is what Paul is revealing. And especially the glories of the kingdom of God as it has now come to the Gentiles. You see, Paul's preaching. See what he's saying about his preaching? Paul does not get up and preach a topical application message about how you can have a better family. Sure, he wants you to have a better family in Christ Jesus. But it's all about being in Christ. It's not simply topically oriented as if it's something like the ethics of this world, as if it's the ethics of man, as if it's according to man. No, it is according to the age to come and your life in Christ. So... What about these letters that he writes? Is he saying something about them as well? And this letter that he writes to the Galatians, is it not a revelation of that glory? That is what he is calling you to. Now, he's going to show us more of this drama. He's going to show us more of this drama of Paul the Apostle transformed and how we are to unite ourselves with the Apostle. How the Galatians who have turned aside from the grace of God to a different gospel are to be called back to that gospel as, in fact, they identify with Paul. And I'm going to make an argument for you 
about this identification. I'm going to show you why I think that's the case. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. Yes. And Cheryl, if you were to look at that verse and compare it to Paul's call in chapter 15, would there be any words that pop out to you that are in both verses? 1, 6, and 7, and 1, 15. Well, it's really 1, 6. That's all you need. 1, 6, and 1, 15. Good. Called me by his grace. And is that in verse 15? Yes. Called me by his grace. All right. You see, what Paul is saying in verse 6 is, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. And so what he's trying to do, he's saying, look, here you, the Galatians, were. You were called by the grace of Christ. Okay? You were called by the grace of Christ, and now you are deserting that call. You are moving away from that call. Let's put, let's put the, uh, the call by the grace here. You deserted that call... Now, how is he going to draw them back from this call? This is not a historical line. This is just a conceptual line. Okay. All right. They were called by the grace of Christ, and they deserted that call. Now, how is he going to draw them back to the call? He, Paul, wants to do this. He, Paul, wants to take them from here and bring them back to that call. Does he not? Paul's goal in writing this letter is to bring the Galatians from their desertion, their point of desertion, back to the call of the grace of God. Doesn't he give his own call? Right? In 115, he's called by the grace of God. He wants them to identify with him. You see? They're to identify with him. Now, the Judaizers in chapter 4, they are zealous for you, but for their own purpose, that essentially you might praise them, build them up. But Paul's goal is different. His goal is to unite them with himself that they may be found in the grace of Jesus Christ. Notice he's calling them to identify with a historical event the historical event of his own call as apostle. Now, we think about being identified with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, and that is the central pillar of our our historical identification. But what Paul is doing is he's saying, in effect, here is Christ's death and resurrection. Paul was identified with that death and resurrection on the road to Damascus. Okay, 
on the road, he was called and so united to Christ, hmm, perhaps in his call. And being called, he is now calling the Galatian church to identify with him, that in identifying with him, so they may be identified with Paul. That's my suggestion. Are you suggesting that there's a call of Christ from death to resurrection? I'm suggesting that that may be in the background. I haven't pushed that enough to know for sure. You know, when you live your life in confusion and self-absorption and pure subjectivity, this gospel calls you to something that liberates you from that. You're called to identify with history. And guess what? The Apostle Paul is your apostle too. You Gentiles who are called in the grace of Christ. Think about that when you're wallowing in your own subjective mire. That you are called to identify with him on his, in his call to the, on the road to Damascus. And that insofar as you identify with that call, you are identifying with Christ and his death and resurrection. And you are thereby being lifted up into heavenly places in Christ Jesus with that firm assurance that you stand before the throne of God clothed in his grace. It is by grace you are saved. Well, I'd like to look a little bit more at this dramatic shift and Though we're a little early for break, I'm thinking maybe we ought to take it now so that we can have our good head, you know, ending and beginning. All right? We'll take a break. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's get started then. Now, uh, in your outline, we're looking at the place where I've put apostolic biography and identification. <clears throat> and I hope to show you here that Paul is actually giving us his life history from before his conversion to after his conversion, that the church, that we might identify with that life. And so identify with Christ who is revealed in that life. And I think 
you're going to see that there's uh, intentional change in characterization here. So let's first of all look at verse 13. And uh, there are uh, two specific words, which I put as A and C, and then there's an, which are similar to what you find in verse 23. So you look down below. So if you've got verse 13A, uh, I'd like you to plug in. We're going to plug in the same word in 13A as we are in 23A as you look at the bottom. And you pass verse 16 and the three lines for that, and you come down to 23A. So 13A and 23A will end up with the same words. 13C and 23C will end up with the same word. And I put... Now, if you look at 13b, I put that in parentheses because 13b and 23b are not the same word, but the two words refer to the same group of people. And then I'm going to suggest that we find, we look for that which follows A to C uh, in each case. And I think we're going to find uh, a change in the Apostle Paul. So, uh, if you're looking at 13, verse 13... Uh, can someone give me an idea of what they think might be there? It's, it's almost like a short phrase, A through C, is almost like a kind of a phrase in, in a sense, or clause, and that is similar to 23A to C, another clause there. I'm going to say persecuted. Okay. Um, And what uh, what what do you have in mind as far as the word the word there goes, Cheryl? As far as persecuted, what what's what? In other words, okay, start with start with persecuted. All right, the one who used to persecute. You're looking at that as a, right, Cheryl? Right. Okay, good. So a your a's would be persecute. All right. So 13 is uh, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. 23 is he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. So what's the other word that we should put in C that is similar? Destroy. Destroy, very good. Okay, so 13 a persecute C is destroy and then what are the what's the reference the referent or the group referred to that and what's the word used in 13 to refer to that group and then the referent in 23 uh, is the same and the word that's used to describe them there Okay, good. Good. Okay, so which verse has us? Correct. Yes. And then Church of God is going to be in, in 13, right? So. Now, if you look at that, um, first of all, you can see... Perhaps the difference between the two is who is speaking in verse 23 implicitly. 
That's right. Those people are persecuted. So they now, they identify themselves, the us, you see, with the church of God, right? And they have this statement about persecuting, destroying. Paul makes it about his previous state before grace. And then the, then the church of God... Us make it afterwards. What's the difference? What's the phrase that comes after in verse 13? What's, what does it say there? In verse 14. What's verse 14? Basically, it's verse 14. Verse 14 is what follows this A through C thing in number 13. And what's 14 say? Someone can just read it for us. I was advancing in Judaism. Good. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Okay, so advancing in Judaism, but I'm going to suggest to you that advancing in Judaism is a form of self-glorification here. Because he's advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own countrymen, you see. Here's a religion where you can advance in works and be better than the other people in the religion. Okay, so, uh, and as he then would say, being extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions and traditions of men. Okay, the contrast, though, after he is called, that phrase that's going to come after he is called and once tried to destroy it, is verse 24, right? And what does verse 24 say? What's that? And they... Good. And they glorify God in me. Okay? I'm going to say again, that phrase can be in me. They glorified God in me. Did they glorify Paul? No. No. Here Paul was seeking for self-glorification to advance in Judaism beyond his countrymen. You see, he was seeking the praise of men. Right? Remember, this was what this contrast throughout this section, throughout the narrative is dealing with. According to men and by Christ. God versus men. Here I'm suggesting to you that the way he's phrasing verse 14 seems to suggest that, that he's going in Judaism beyond his own countrymen, seeking perhaps some form of self-glorification by his own works. Here, by contrast, you see, you have God being glorified. And then you have that phrase again, in me. In me, which you see reminds us of the revelation in verse 16. Okay, and so what do we have? I'm giving away the ghost here. We have in verse 16, do we not? The Christ who is revealed in me. You see? The Christ who is revealed in me. See what he's doing. He's saying, you see, me, apart from Christ, I was seeking to advance in Judaism beyond my countrymen, according to the flesh, to build myself up. And then 
God changed my eschatology. It's no longer me seeking to advance myself for some goal that surpasses all others in this world. It is instead God bringing about the goal that he has already accomplished in his son, Christ's death and resurrection. And that is revealed in me. And now it's that reality, the grace of God revealed in me, that the church sees when I preach the gospel. And they glorify God in me. This is a praise of the church of the eschatological coming of God. You see that? If the Son, you see, in if the Son revealed himself in Paul on the road to Damascus, and if the Son revealed his eternal risen glory, his heavenly kingdom, his eschatological glory, if he revealed that glory in Paul, then that is what the church sees when they glorify God in me. They praise God for the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. By what? By the preaching of the gospel, you see. By the preaching of the gospel. What was he first trying to do? What was Paul trying to do? He was persecuting the church. He was trying to destroy the church. Now what is Paul trying to do as he preaches the gospel? He's building the church up. Yes, he's building her up. So the one who was once trying to destroy the church of God and was fighting against the eschatological glory of Christ has been conquered. And the grace of God is revealed in him so that now he does the opposite. He preaches that gospel to build up the church. Paul is showing you a transformation that he has gone through in this narrative. And he wants you to identify with it. He wants the Galatians to identify with it. You see, because what is happening is the Galatians are following a different gospel, which is no gospel at all, right? And in that gospel, they, in effect, are following the ways of men. They're seeking the praise of men. Going back to Judaism, you see? That's what they're doing. They're going back to Judaism. And Paul is saying, wait a minute, identify with me. When I was back in Judaism... That was before my transformation, before my calling. Now, I'm going to identify with you as you seek to go back to Judaism. I'm going to tell you that I was there, and in that way I can show you my existential relationship to you, perhaps. But then I want you to existentially identify with me as I go through this transformation on the road to Damascus and surpass this age and the age of men and go on to the glories of the grace of Christ. And isn't it ironic? 
even the church in Judea. This is the church in Judea that is praising God. I mean, these Judaizers are telling us, if you want to go back, you know, if you want to identify with the church in Judea, you need to be circumcised. And Paul is saying, no, it's this church in Judea that prays God because of me. So, I've kind of let some of the cats out of the bag, but verse 16, what are our words? We've got three words, you see, in verse 16 that were already repeated, and I've put that in between here. See, we've already had what word? To reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. And you see, he said to reveal his son, verse 16. So I kind of put that as a long line there, to reveal his son. We've had the revelation of Jesus Christ um, already uh, in verse 12. Okay, So here it's to reveal his son. And then, of course, that I might preach him. That's the word we saw repeated at the beginning and the end, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Um, and then uh, there I did not immediately... Con- uh, and in me is the other phrase I have in mind. In me, okay, the in me. So it is the revelation in me and preaching. Now, I've mentioned... Uh, some of these things. But let me let, let's let's take a look briefly at this comparison between the phrase "revealed His Son in Me," verse sixteen, and verse twelve, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why doesn't Paul just repeat "revealed Jesus Christ in Me," but "revealed His Son in Me"? Take a look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Would someone read that for us? But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that he might receive the adoption of sons as sons. Good. Now, we have his son, and then we have 4.4 4 and 4.5. And... What's what's the connection made in four four and four five? Is there a connection between the son and someone else? To redeem those that were under the law. Very good. In order that what? That we might that they might receive all rights. 
Good. They may receive all rights, if you will, as the sons of God, right? So you are called sons of God, and here he makes at least a relative contrast to the period of the law. He says, you know, the children, as long as they are under tutors and so forth, are under guardians and tile the time set by their father. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent his son. The fullness of the time. Here we have the incarnation of Christ. Here we have Paul using that language of eschatology once again. The kingdom. The fullness of the times. And that arrives with Christ. God sends forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, that he might redeem those under the law. We might receive the adoption. So we receive adoption of sons as opposed to being under the period of the law. Now, in chapter 3 of this book, Paul is going to speak of those under the law as under curse. And so I'm going to put these lines here to represent that. And I'm going to suggest to you that insofar as Paul, has, as Christ, has redeemed us from the curse of the law and brought us to a kingdom which cannot be cursed in the heavenly places, he has given us the full right as sons. For instance, under the law, you might say that Israel, the children of God, they certainly were participants in those who trusted in Christ before the time were certainly participants in the grace of God to come, in all the benefits of salvation and eternal life, even then in their lives. And Paul would agree with Hebrews 11 in that respect. And yet, visibly around them, there was the curse upon the land, which was considered part of their inheritance. And so the people of God could be cast out from that land, but the prophets predict the day in which they will inherit an inheritance forever, which is without curse, eternal in the heavens. A day that is an eschatological day, a day that cannot be reversed. There was exile for the people of God, and they could be cast out from the land. The blessings of the land could be reversed. But in this kingdom, those blessings of their inheritance in heaven can never be reversed. So they get sons with a capital S. With a big capital S is your sonship. And I would suggest to you that this is why Paul, part of the reason, Paul is revealing Christ as he's revealed his son in me. The son of God then went under the curse. The Son of God bore that curse and was freed for it forevermore in his resurrection, eternal in the heavens, so that he possesses his inheritance as the one to whom the promises were made forever. And he can never be taken from that. And so he is preeminently called the Son of God in the fullness of the times. This is not to deny his previous sonship, if that is the case. In fact, there he's making a connection with that. Christ is son before his incarnation. And so the church has always been right. He is eternally begotten son of God. 
You can't call him son before his incarnation if he's not eternally related to God the Father as eternally son of God, eternally begotten. But he puts the son under the law, under curse, that he may bear that curse so that we may then receive the adoption of sons. And so here, in revealing his son in me, I am suggesting that he is revealing the fullness, another way of speaking of the fullness of the arrival of the kingdom of God. And therefore, displaying in Paul the reality he will talk about in this epistle. In this epistle, he will tell them not to go under the age of the law, not to return to the age of the law, where there is some degree of curse and being potential of being cast out from God's favor. He will call them instead to come to Christ, the Son of God, in the fullness of his sonship, and call them to participate as those who've been adopted sons of God. And this is your blessing, if you are in Christ. Now, another thing, because I've shown you that connection between his incarnation and his resurrection life, when Paul speaks about him being son of God, and he's just contrasted that to being according to man, you see? Remember how in verse 12 he's contrasted man with God, right? Man with Jesus Christ. Man with the revelation of Jesus Christ in verse 12. So if that contrast is being made, then when he speaks of the revelation of his son in verse 16 at his calling, can he be thinking like the liberal? The liberal who believes that Jesus Christ is adopted as son of God simply at his resurrection, as if he were not son before? As if he were simply a man? No. He cannot, because he is contrasting man with Jesus Christ. He is contrasting man ultimately with the Son of God. And so this heavenly age that the Son reveals requires his deity. You see? They glorify God in me. Interesting in verse 24. They glorify God in me. Is there a reflection on his call on the road to Damascus where he said he came to reveal his son in me? Is this perhaps another reflection of the deity of Christ? Well, at any rate, this is a poignant gospel. And it is a gospel that is going to focus on Paul's revelation to the Gentiles, his preaching to the Gentiles, to you. Now, Paul does briefly go to Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem to visit Peter. In verses 18 to 20. 
But I want to ask you, do you see any of those important repeated words that we've seen throughout this text in verses 18 to 20? Do you find the word to preach? For instance... You find the phrase, in me. No. Do you find a revelation of Jesus Christ in verses 18 to 20? No. In other words, all the important Repeated words that we have in this section are not found in his visit to Jerusalem to visit Peter. You see, that was an interlude. He went to visit Peter after three years to be acquainted with him. But that is not the main focus of this narrative. The main focus of this narrative is how Paul responds to his apostolic calling to the Gentiles on the road to Damascus. That's my claim. You mean he didn't go to the Bible before the first pope? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. No, he did not go to bow before the first pope. And he doesn't even do that in chapter 2. Yes. Are you saying that this being a narrative, he includes that uh, trip to Jerusalem just to be complete in his narrative? There's no gospel purpose or no purpose. Okay, you have a good question, but let me let me say, if there is a gospel purpose, okay, it's not the focus of this text as I see it because of the way the language is used. Uh, the focus of the language is his journeying in Gentile territories before and after this trip to Jerusalem. Um, but he does go to be acquainted with Peter. How do you take that word? Uh, that word in classic Greek can actually be used to acquire information from. But it can also be used simply to become acquainted with. Now, it's true that if he goes 15 days, they're not going to just talk about the weather, as someone says, Right. Uh, so there's perhaps no objection to say that perhaps there's certain things about particulars about Jesus' earthly ministry that Paul may have learned, but not the essence and core of his gospel, not the substance of this gospel, which he has been preaching. Okay. That he receives from revelation of Jesus Christ. And so... When he says he goes to see Peter for 15 days, he goes to see Peter, and he doesn't see any of the other disciples, any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And it seems like he says that more in passing, right? Uh, that doesn't seem like his main purpose to go up. Uh, and some have asked, well, well why didn't he see the others? Uh, you know, it's, it's quite plausible that they were out in mission, you know, uh, or something like that. Uh, or that he was uh, visiting a part of the church that, uh, in which Peter was more central. Um, but at any rate, I don't think it's the focus of the narrative. He's not going to Jerusalem. In fact, if you look at this, uh, when we get up to it, 
he specifically denies, I did not immediately go up to Jerusalem. You see, that was his point. I was not called. What would Paul have done if he was still living like a Pharisee? That's true. But as a Pharisee, he was united to his ancestral traditions, right? And so if he were remaining in that orb, some have suggested he would then want to return to Jerusalem and get the ancestral traditions of the church right away. Perhaps. So it may be that the fact that he says, I didn't go to Jerusalem is an example of how he turned from that perspective he had with his ancestral traditions. Perhaps. And so there are, an, there are I, I would say, so you've got the negative, not Jerusalem, but he goes up to Arabia and then returns to Damascus. And then he goes three years later, to go see Peter. It's a brief interlude. And then he returns to Syria and Cilicia. So you see you have this Jerusalem visit bracketed by two two named places of Gentiles places and then two named places of Gentile places again at the end. Um, And the fact that the the central words aren't repeated, at least it leads me to believe that that's not the central focus of his going. However, he wants to say this also to to show the times he did go to Jerusalem, just in case it might be said, no, Paul went up to Jerusalem to get his message of the gospel. He's going to say, no, it's not till three years later, you see. He's first preaching that gospel, and then three years later he goes, and then when he's away is when the Judean church praises him for preaching that message. And then he goes up again 14 years later. All right, well, let's let's look at a few aspects uh, of of. The transformation of Paul, and I've mentioned some of these before, before, but I already mentioned the transformation that takes place when he preaches, uh, he's persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it, and now he's seeking to preach that faith, building up the church. But you also, again, have this idea, perhaps, of him seeking self-exaltation. He sought to be beyond those, you see, of the ans- of his own countrymen. And now, what does he do? He identifies uh, with the grace of Christ. And once he was seeking to please men, seeking to please men for his own glory, and now the church glorifies God in him. There's also uh, another possibility here, again, to fit with that idea of not going up to Jerusalem. He says in verse Uh, 16, he did not consult flesh and blood. He makes a point of this. Right after he's being transformed by Christ, he did not immediately go up to Jerusalem to consult flesh and blood. Hmm, that term flesh and blood seems to remind us of men. He did not go to consult men. His gospel was not from men or according to men. And therefore, this may represent a part of his own transformation that he does not go to consult men. And so he is not seeking to please men. Remember verse 10. He doesn't seek to please men, but God. 
And so this may represent this fact that he is content now with the grace of God that is revealed in him in Jesus Christ. And if so, you see what he's trying to get the Galatians to see. How he's trying to get the Galatians to identify with him. It is not in pleasing men. It is not in seeking the favor of men, but of being in Christ and being satisfied with him. Well, let's look at a few other narrative clues. Uh, This I have as number four on your outline. And uh, I've I've simply repeated the stages of the narrative from verses 115 to 24 for me. That's taken from the earlier part where we had the stages of the whole narrative. This just whittles it down to chapter 1, so you don't have to flip back. And then after that, I've put repeated verbs of movement. I want to say motion in the narrative. And uh, the first one... I've already commented on these. I jumped the gun a bit in answering Art's question. But uh, you can see, what is it that he does not do in verse 17? And here you have a repeated word or phrase. It's actually just one word in the Greek, but it might be two words in your English version. In verses 17 and 18, there is a verb of motion. Good. Okay. Very good. So he says, nor did I go to Jerusalem, not go, or some have it go away, to, or go up, sorry, to Jerusalem. Go up. Did not go up to Jerusalem, verse 17. And so then verse 18, what does he have? Went up. Three years later, I went up, Right. I did go up this time. And going up to Jerusalem might be the idea that it's, that, that it's a higher elevation. Verse 17, we have a word that's repeated in verses 17 and 21. And, and this may be two words in your English version as well. Again, a verb of motion in 17. Good. Went, yes, went away and went into, or, or went, okay? So, went away. So, notice Paul is emphasizing in this narrative his movement, okay? His, if you will, pilgrimage. He doesn't return to Jerusalem except for a brief interlude in the middle, He goes up to Jerusalem. He doesn't go up to Jerusalem, and he goes up to Jerusalem. Is this apostle tied to the land of Israel anymore? No, No, he is not, is he? He is moving freely through Gentile territories. He is moving out to Gentile territories on purpose. If he was a man who wanted to absolutize the Jewish theocracy... Where would he want to go? Yes, he'd want to go to Jerusalem. 
And wouldn't he want to go to Jerusalem for the feasts? Yeah. He goes for an interlude of three years. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. And then again, 14 years later, he has separated himself from the law, the feasts of Israel, that whole theocratic legal system. And instead, he has lived in a way that accords with the transcendent nature of the kingdom of God. God revealed his son in him, which is to reveal that eschatological age, you see, in which one is a true pilgrim. He doesn't use this term, but you can see that he is like a man on a pilgrimage. You see, no longer tied to this world, therefore living as a traveling pilgrim. And following, you see, his calling to the Gentiles. Now let's let's take a take another look at some um, aspects of this because we have Paul here. Is there anything he's trying to do with the church here? The church in Galatians. What is the church in Galatians trying to do? That's right. They're turning away and they want to go back to the law. They want to identify with Jerusalem. Throughout this whole narrative, whenever Paul goes to Jerusalem, he leaves it. All right, let's look at something else in the narrative. The the characters of the drama. I first have Paul there. And then verses 13 and 22, what do we have? could be a three-word phrase, actually. could be a group. And Church of God. The Church of God. Okay. So in verse 13, you have the Church of God. And, of course, uh, in uh, verse 22, you have the churches of Judea, which are in Christ. Okay. Uh, So the Church of God, which is in Christ. And you notice that the church here frames is part of his narrative. Of course, the church, what is Paul's relationship to the church of God before in persecution, at the time when he persecuted the church? Is he seeking to unite himself with that church? No, he is not. But when he gets to verse 22... Is there a transformation of this man? What is his relationship to the church at that point? What's that? Unknown. That's right. He is unknown by face, but how do they see their relationship to him? By reputation. By reputation, and they do what? They glorify God in me. Is there not some union going on? They glorify God in me, you see, and what? how are they described? 
in verse 22. We have in me here, they glorify God in me. And we remember this is Christ in him. How is the church described in verse 22? In Christ, the church of God, which is in Christ. You see what Paul is beginning to do more clearly. He is saying that the union, the union that you have with others is in Christ. It is not according to men. Not according to men. That is his contrast. He is contrasting throughout the narrative and the narrative that follows people that are seeking union with other people on the ground of their cultural connection, Judaism, you see, on the basis of their unique eschatologies. We all share this particular goal in mind, you see, and therefore we unite together based on this goal. And Paul is saying, no. That eschatological point of view is over with. And with it, Christ has revealed his Son in me, and now the basis of union is in Christ Jesus. And in Christ Jesus, is there one exalted over another? Are you better than anyone else in Christ in terms of your identity, in terms of your justified life? It is by the grace of God. This is how you are to live in the church. Paul does not go immediately to see Peter and James, you see. If he went to see Peter and James, he would be giving them special favoritism. Those are the other two characters in the narrative. He does not do that. This is in Christ. The union you have with one another is in Christ. You see how Paul is undermining all Galatian claims to superiority? And he is also undermining everything that may happen in the church today, which is based upon superiority. People in their little cliques seeking to be better than other people. For any reason. Seeking to isolate yourself from the other members of the church. Because you have a special privilege based on whatever it is. Your race, your creed, your knowledge, your experience. No. Here he is giving another point of view. A union in heavenly places. A union in the kingdom of God, which is the basis of this life in Christ. Now, how does this relate to his calling as an apostle to the Gentiles? I want you to look at the locations in the drama. And I've already really said these in answer to Art's question. But in verse 17, we have what? First of all, go up to... Anyone. Jerusalem. Okay. Jerusalem. Go up to Jerusalem. And then, of course, we have... He did not go up to Jerusalem, but he went up to where? Arabia. Arabia and 
Damascus, returned again to Damascus, okay? Arabia, Damascus. And then, of course, he does, in verse 18, what does he do? Three years later, I went up to Jerusalem, right? And then, after that, in verse uh, 21, then I went up to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And then verse 22, I'm going to suggest verse 22, what do we have? What's, what's a region here? Judea. Okay. So verse 22, we have Judea. And uh, and I put 13 and 14 because there might be something implicit there. Uh, 13 and 14, what I had in mind that may be implicit um, is that uh, he persecuted the church of God and beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And that is presumably the Judean church because they said the one who first tried to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. So 13 uh, and 14 may have implicitly uh, Judea. Now, um, again, notice that he is talking about not Jerusalem, Gentile areas, Gentile areas. Now, what do we say about um, Paul's, uh, first of all, um, his call here? We've got, he returns again to Damascus. Uh, before, actually, before we say that, maybe you should, well, he returns again to Damascus. What does this suggest in the narrative? In the narrative. He returns again to Damascus. He goes to Arabia and returns again to Damascus. Has he said anything about Damascus here earlier? He's implying it. He's implying it, right? Yeah. By the word return to Damascus or what? Well, Damascus, the road to Damascus is where he got the revelation in the first place. Okay. Now he's going back to the starting point. Good. So the road to Damascus, now do we learn that from Galatians 2? Right. I think he's assuming that they've already heard that part of his story. I, th- I think you're right. Yeah. And if, if you uh, uh, look at Acts chapter 9, I'm kind of jumping ahead here a little bit. Acts chapter 9, look under location in Paul's call and jump down to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verses 3 and 8. Somebody want to read verses 3 and 8? As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And... Okay, so he's approaching Damascus, right? He's approaching Damascus. Now verse 8, go ahead. 
Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. Okay. How close to Damascus do we think he probably was? We don't have to be precise, but he's fairly close to Damascus, right? He's approaching Damascus. They lead him by the hand afterwards. Well, where is Damascus? Syria. Syria. Okay. Well, let's let's take a look at our map that I gave you on the last page. And I want you to think about, I mean, this is a map that gives you the 12 tribes earlier on. And you can see the extension of that kingdom of the 12 tribes. And I want to ask you where Damascus is in relationship to that. Look up on the upper right-hand corner. It's outside. That's interesting. He's called outside of the land of Israel. And yet, how does he describe his call? And you have to go backward a little bit in your outline here. How does he describe that call? He says, verse 15, But when he, had, he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through the grace of Christ was pleased to reveal his son in me. He who had set me apart from his mother's womb. Someone want to look at Jeremiah 1.5? Somebody else can look at Isaiah 49.1. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet. That call that Paul is talking about, the way he describes his call, sounds a lot like the way Jeremiah's call is described as a prophet, doesn't it not? It's suggestive of a prophetic call, we might say. And what about Isaiah 49.1? Before I was born, the Lord called me from my birth. He has made mention of my name. Good. Another possible allusion, you see, to Isaiah Where were these men called? Yes, but where was their call? Probably in Jerusalem. Probably in Jerusalem, right. Probably within the confines of the land of Israel. So do we have the fact that Paul is implicitly alluding to Damascus? Okay. Do we have some suggestion, you see, that he is being called outside of the land of Israel and that he sees that as significant? 
that you see now an apostle to the nations would be called outside the land. It's not, so we can fit this with what we've said about the eschatology. We have a Pharisee on the road to Damascus who sees the risen Christ. He's not expecting resurrection until the end of history, is he? But we also have a Pharisee who associates the calling of Old Testament prophets, for the most part, with the land of Israel. Who would expect, yes, maybe a later calling and revelation to a prophet to occur outside that, as we might have with Jonah, yet not an initial call. Probably not. And here an initial call comes to him outside the land of Israel. Is he saying that that calling of his is redemptive, historically significant? And that he is called outside of the land of Israel to this gospel, which says that one does not need to go back to Jerusalem. One does not need to be anchored in Israel. One does not have to be circumcised to be a Christian. He wasn't anchored in his calling in Israel. And so his disciples, those to whom he preaches his message, need not be anchored there either. For he is called in the midst of the nations to be a witness to the nations. And that would fit with the transcendent nature of this kingdom. Yes? Um, maybe this is too divergent, but chapter or verse 15, called me by his grace. You compare that with verse 6, the audience, the recipient of the epistle, who called you by the grace of Christ. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference in the efficacy of the two calls? I see where you're going to go with that, David. Um, I, I don't know where I'm going. No, no, that's okay. No, no, I, maybe, maybe you're not going to go with it there. Um, I think I'll table that right now, because otherwise we won't get through with the rest. Of, we're not going to get through the rest of it anyway, but we'll get, we won't get through the rest of the central things. Maybe we can deal with that later. Here, um, again, I want to ask a question about the appearances of Jesus. It is the Son revealed in Him, but where were the previous appearances of the risen Christ? Well, someone take a look at Matthew 28.10. Somebody want to read that for us? Ben? I'm sorry, I'm not there. Okay, that's right. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take my word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. Okay, so he does go to Galilee, and sometimes Galilee is known as Galilee of the Gentiles, and yet it is still within the land. And what about 
Luke 24, 50. Craig? And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Okay, so he goes out as far as Bethany there. Um, that's just an example of uh, where he was when he was ascended. You don't have these appearances occurring outside the land. But here, Paul sees the risen Christ, you see, outside the land of Israel. And so, again, a unique appearance of Christ and a unique apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is giving an objective apocalypsis of his resurrection in the midst of history outside the land of Palestine so that he may bring that life into an apostle who will go outside the land of Palestine. An apostle that will go forth to the nations. You see, perhaps there's a lot embodied in this appearance to Paul and the relationship of that appearance to his mission and gospel. And he may be showing us that, that he lives out of that as he travels. You see, he lives out of that calling, being in Damascus, outside the land, as he then goes out to Arabia, and then to Damascus again, though he goes to Jerusalem, he goes to Syria and Cilicia, finally, and where even the Jewish church glorifies God in him. And so, Paul moves primarily in Gentile areas, according to his calling. And in that way, you see, Christ is revealed in him, 1, 16, and 11. And we have, as I said, that in Christ formula, in verse 22, described of the church, the church's union with Paul in Christ is a union in Christ, not in Jerusalem. And the very fact that this gospel now goes out into the nations and is delivered to his apostle, perhaps outside the land, is a reaffirmation of that. That, in fact, this gospel is a gospel where union takes place in union in Jesus Christ and nothing else. Nothing else. And so, that is where you are at, you see. That is where your life is. You are united to that apostle on the road to Damascus. You have been called outside the land of Israel, and therefore you have been called outside of any earthly hope to a heavenly hope, a hope that liberates you from this age. It liberates you from bondage to men and, in fact, the fear of men because you have been set free above in heavenly places. There is where your liberty is at. And that is why. The church glorified God in Paul. 
Because you see, that brings glory to your hearts when you understand that liberty. And it brings glory to God himself in Jesus Christ, who has brought that liberty to you because of his death and his resurrection. He is your life, and he is your all. Any questions? Okay, then you're dismissed.